Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Good Morning Liberty. Well, what is up? All of my liberty-loving friends, this is Nate with the Good Morning Liberty Podcast. Once again, I'm here by myself, and that's okay. You know, I've accepted it. Charlie's gone. I don't know where he is. He's somewhere up in, I don't know, Ohio or or Indiana or some kind of crap like that. So he says, I'm at his house, so I know he's not. I know he's not at his house. But if this is your first time listening to the Good Morning Liberty Podcast, what I would say is that we need you to go and subscribe to this podcast. A lot of people listen on our website, and we really, really appreciate that. We sincerely appreciate that. You probably found our website because of an article, because of an advertisement, something like that. Maybe you went to BernieLies.com so you could figure out a couple things that were true for once. <laughs> I don't know. BernieLies.com. Thank you for going to that. Very valuable URL domain, by the way. That was a good grab last year, for sure. So anyway, go subscribe to the podcast. We put out a new episode every single day of the week when we want to, which is pretty much every single day of the week. And we're talking about life, liberty, and the pursuit of meaning, not the pursuit of happiness. We talk about the pursuit of meaning because happiness to us is a is a terrible goal. It's a feeling. It's just a feeling that you have sometimes. There's going to be a lot of times where you're not going to feel happy. A lot of times you will not feel happy. So if happiness is your goal, then there's going to be a lot of times where you're just not going to be fulfilled. And what we think is the better goal, and of course we got this by reading books by people like Jordan Peterson and and following his work and everything, Uh, What we figure is a better goal is actually pursuing meaning in your life. And if you're pursuing that meaning, you'll have a lot more chances to feel happy. You'll still feel happy, but you can pursue meaning. That's what I'm doing right here. That's what Charlie does when he decides to be here. We pursue meaning every single day. This is not exactly happy work here. Combing through budgets, combing through all all kinds of different economic reports, dealing with Bernie Sanders fans all the time, trying to to fight socialism on a daily basis. Not exactly happiness, you would say. It's a little frustrating. It gets you a little bit angry all the time, I will admit. But I am pursuing meaning. And I know every single day when I wake up, 
that there is an actual meaning to my life. And you have to figure out what that is for you too. That way it can, it'll get you out of bed in the morning. I started waking up randomly last week, thought I would try it. Started waking up at 5, 5.30 every single morning. And I would start making videos for TikTok or for, for whatever. Go follow us on TikTok if you're using TikTok. You, you should be. It's a pretty funny app. I get it. China's tracking my every, my every move. But uh, they were probably doing that anyway already. So we're using TikTok. And uh, you guys should go follow us there. I get up at 5.30 in the morning. I start making videos. I reply to comments. I reply to emails. I try to write a few chapters in this book that I'm working on right now, uh, which we will be talking about at a later date when I get some more of it finished. Um, so I try to write a few chapters in this book. I try to read some books like um, I'm reading one right now called Economic Facts and Fallacies by Thomas Sowell. I already read Basic Economics, and honestly, it has all of this stuff in it. This one does. But uh, this is just another way to get a lot of those facts and fallacies in your head. And it's an eight-hour listen as opposed to a 25-hour listen or whatever basic economics is. So I would recommend going and reading that book. So I start doing that every morning. And what I've found is now that I get up and I start doing these things that I find very meaningful, that I'm actually trying to make a change, I want to wake up in the morning. Who really wants to wake up in the morning? Do you feel that way when you get up to go to your job or when you get up to go to school? Do you feel like you actually, you want to get up, you're excited to wake up and start working on what you're working on? You should find something that gives you that type of excitement, something that gives you that type of meaning in your life. I could sleep for a few more hours. I could wait. The, the market opens at 8.30. I don't really need to be looking at it until 8 a.m., I could sleep. I could sleep for a couple, couple few more hours, but I'd rather get up and actually do these things that actually give me some type of meaning. And when you find that, you will find that you will find happiness more often, even if happiness is not your goal. Okay. So look for that. You got to figure out what your why is every day. What is your why? What are you doing? Why are you doing what you're doing? What's your goal? Okay, mine, my goal as a libertarian, as a libertarian, as a liberty-minded individual is to try to further the ideology that has helped the most amount of people escape poverty in the history of the human race. It's being attacked right now. It's being destroyed right now. Out of what people are always looking for, which is a false sense of security. People always want some type of false sense of security. They, they don't really want the risk, right? They don't really, I don't even know if everyone wants the freedom. Charlie and I joke around all the time. What most people want is a prison. That's what they really want. They want to wake up. They want to have someone telling them what to do. They want to have their three square meals. They want to be surrounded by a wall. They want the guards to be the only people who are armed. They want a doctor to take care of them if they need it, something like that. And they want a built-in people that they can hang out with and all that. They want a prison. The prison is, you know, it's a guaranteed thing. You know what you're going to do. You know what you're going to get. Okay. So a lot of people are, are searching for that every single day. 
And that's really what they're looking for from people. That's what they're getting from people like, say, Bernie Sanders, who won New Hampshire last night or yesterday. Bernie Sanders is possibly going to be the Democratic nominee. Try and let that sink into your head. If an 80-year-old communist is actually going to be the leading contender for president of the United States on the Democratic Party side. That's pretty crazy. That's actually really disgusting, if you think about it. it. It's very disgusting. So now we're in this situation where a lot of people want security, so they want people who are going to tell them, I'm going to make sure that you have all of your basic necessities taken care of. That way they can feel like they're going to have a stress-free life or an, or an easier life. The problem is what we've seen throughout history is that governments rarely follow through on doing a good job at this. Very rarely. Now you can look at small countries, countries that are the size of one U.S. city, one city, or one very, very small U.S. state. You can look at those countries, of course I'm talking about Denmark or England, stuff like that. You can look at them and say, hey look, they've been able to provide some of these things to their people. They're able to do it at a, you know, decent cost, what it looks like. They're able to do it fairly efficiently, although obviously we got problems with, they got problems with wait times and shortages, all kinds of things like that. But they're able to take care of these people, and all of these people are able to focus their attention elsewhere other than just trying to make sure that their basic necessities are met. The problem is, we don't have any examples, no examples of a country the size of the United States doing this effectively. You can think about the physical size and talk about Canada if you want to, but Canada's got the same population as the state of California. So that's not even a good example. There's something that we, we talked, well, we talked about this when we interviewed Jason Stapleton from the podcast, Wealth, Power, and Influence. Go listen to it. Really good podcast. We talked about this when we interviewed him. People have this idea that as something gets bigger and bigger, it automatically gets more efficient. Sometimes in business, that's true. A lot of times in business, that's true. Amazon can facilitate millions of people's needs at a cheaper price than could, say, 100,000 small local stores. They're able to group all of that together, and they're able to facilitate those needs at a cheaper price for all of the people in that system. Now, they're motivated by profit. They find every single way that they possibly can to do everything better, to do everything faster, to do all of everything they do cheaper and more efficiently because they're motivated by trying to keep whatever is left over. So their goal is to make sure that there's something left over. You have an issue when you talk about this with government because they're technically nonprofit, I guess. So they're nonprofit. They're not incentivized to make sure that there's something left over. They're not incentivized to become more efficient and faster and better at everything. We've got obvious examples of this. Obvious. We've seen it for years. We all know how inefficient the government is. So yeah, when you're talking about business, you can see that 
some businesses, as they get bigger, they can actually become more efficient. But what we don't realize is that there is a point where you get too big and you become too inefficient. You become too big to be able to control yourself. You become too big to be able to do your job efficiently, to make sure that you're covering all of your bases. AT&T saw this, and I, I believe the 70s, this was happening with AT&T. Now they, they uh, got broken up. Okay, but even the CEO of AT&T, is a story from Basic Economics, was talking about how grossly large and inefficient they have become. They were too big of a company. He said that they were too big. Okay. He said some kind of joke, and I'll paraphrase that if you, if you kicked AT&T in the hind end, it would be three years before the head said, ouch. That's how big they were. So you can get too big to still remain efficient. This is what actually happens with the government. The reason this is important is because when you look at a country like Denmark, they're the size of West Virginia, and they've got a population that's lower than the city of New York. And they're able to provide health care to their people. But you're talking on... You're talking about an idea that is basically, imagine if Bernie Sanders or Bloomberg were out there saying that we need to provide Medicare for all in New York City. That is a lot different than saying that the government can obviously take care of this for 330 million people spread across 2,000 mile long borders and this massive bureaucracy that's going to have to take care of all of it. That's very different. It's not the same thing at all. So assuming that you can talk about Canada or Denmark and Canada's got 30 million people, we've got 330 million people. Australia, Australia's got what, 22, 25 million people, something like that. Smaller population in the state of California. If you wanted to actually test this idea, Mr. Sanders, Senator Sanders, if you wanted to actually test this idea, people should be pushing for Medicare for all in one single state. We've had plans like this. We've had some plans like this go through already. And it did not go well. Mitt Romney tried to do this. It didn't go well. So we've already seen that we can't even implement these types of plans on a small statewide basis. And our states are still more people and larger territory than the Scandinavian countries are. As something gets bigger and bigger, as it gets too big, as the bureaucracy is way too large to be efficient, it just cannot effectively do its job. It can't do it. It doesn't matter if we agree that healthcare is too expensive. It doesn't matter if we agree that there are poor people and we should do something about that. Those are emotional arguments. And they're true. They're, they're true. Healthcare is too expensive. Drug prices are too expensive. That is not automatically an argument that the government could do a better job. It's an emotional argument. And you cannot use an emotional argument to push for a certain policy. 
doesn't mean you can't have emotions. We all have emotions. There's a funny thing I always say about my wife. I, I told her one time, I remember, the heck was that? Funny story I told about my wife. I remember we were standing in our room folding laundry, something like that. And I was talking about the difference between libertarians and, and socialists or like how libertarians think and how everyone else is think. How everyone else thinks. What I said was, most people make their decisions subjectively. They make their decisions based on emotions. They're very emotional about everything. Libertarians don't make decisions based on emotions. We use objective truth. We try to find the root cause of all the problems. We try to really take care of what's actually going on. We don't use emotions to make decisions. And she said, well, yeah, you do. I'm like, what? What do you mean? She said, well, you're just really, really emotional about liberty. She had me on that one. That was true. So I'm still emotional about it. But you got to look at the reason that I'm emotional about it. You got to look at the reason. This is my why once again. Nietzsche said, he who has a why can endure almost anyhow. So you got to look at your why. And you got to say, why am, I, why am I emotional about this? Well, it's because I see all of these issues around the country. I see people who can't afford their health care or who can't pay their bills or who can't read or write. And then I dig, instead of just being emotional and saying we have to make ourselves feel secure and say that we're doing something about this, even if it doesn't work. Instead of saying that, I say, what is the actual root cause of this problem. You have to keep working down through this problem all the way to its very, very core bare bones. And when you do that objectively, and you do that with, without bias, just looking at factual information, you see that the bulk of our problems in the U.S. stem from government involvement in every single area of our lives. Now that just sounds like I'm someone who hates the government, so I'm just saying that, right? You can actually look at it. You can look at healthcare. You can say, well, what happened in the early 1900s when the government struck a deal with Blue Cross Blue Shield to get them to use community rating, which means that you can't charge a different rate in a given geographic region to different people. So that's your community rating. Doesn't matter if someone walks into your office and they're 500 pounds, they're in a wheelchair and their, their knees are all blown out and they've got COPD and they walk in and they want health insurance. You've got to, say, you've got to charge them the same rate that you charge someone who jogged into the office, who's got a 2% body fat, who's in amazing condition, all of these things, you got to charge them the same rate. Right now, it's within a given percentage of the rate. So what happens with community rating is since they have to charge them the same rate, they obviously can't just charge them both the cheaper rate for the really healthy person. So they just charge them both the more expensive rate that they have to charge for the unhealthy person. That way, they're in the community rating law and what happens? Both people have to pay more. 
instead of one person having to pay for insurance based on the risk that they are conveying onto the insurance company because of their health, they both end up having to pay the same rate. It would be the same way if two people walked in to try and get car insurance and one of them had 10 accidents and 100 speeding tickets and another person walked in, they had a completely perfect driving record, not a single thing on it whatsoever. Would you say that those two people need to pay the exact same rate for their car insurance? No. That's ridiculous. That's insane. Yet that's what we do with health insurance. We make this law. In the early 1900s, Blue Cross struck a deal with the government. They agreed to do the community rating. Hey, that's okay with them. They'll just charge both people the higher price, right? They agreed to the community rating, and in exchange, what happened was they allowed for businesses to purchase health insurance plans pre-tax. So businesses would be able to buy their group insurance, their insurance plans, at a cheaper effective price than people could in the private market, than people could on their own. This is where you start having employer-provided health care. This is an issue. Because then you get locked into your insurance plan that's provided by your employer, and then you're stuck. You got a lot of people who won't change jobs because they don't want to lose their health insurance. This stems all the way back to the early 1900s, folks. This has been an issue for a long time. You get more issues like, obviously, Medicare. As soon as Medicare was enacted, you just look at a price chart. Look at the prices skyrocket up from the time that we started confiscating hundreds of billions of dollars from the taxpayers and giving it to the healthcare industry. Where's the incentive for the prices to go lower? Can you name anything that the government takes over the payment of that then gets cheaper? It's because human beings need incentives to become more efficient and to make things cheaper. The free market provides that. There's a reason that things outside of immense government re regulation get cheaper and cheaper over time and higher quality. The free market provides the incentive for people to continue to charge lower prices for things and to create new products. When you inject this guaranteed money into a system, there's no incentive for the price to go down. You can look at the same thing at the price of college. As soon as the government started taking taxpayer money and putting it into college through grants, loans, all kinds of things like that, the prices skyrocketed. Why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they? And by the way, why aren't we, why are people on the left demonizing the people in the universities, the, the actual administrations of the universities who are setting these prices? Like they demonize CEOs of corporations. Why don't I see enough articles talking about how evil the people who work at Harvard are or who work at UCLA are? Why don't you see anyone talking about the price gouging that's going on? inside of the university system. Now, they're just mad that it's so expensive. They're mad about interest rates that are charged by people. By the way, the private market hasn't done student loans since 2010. So they're mad about interest rates that are charged by people who they think are in the private market, but they're actually through governments. And then they just think that they should be able to get it all for free. They're not demonizing the, administ the administrators of the schools like they demonize Jeff Bezos. Why not? You got $1.6 trillion in student debt, and I'm not seeing anyone outside the office protesting the people who set the prices at UCLA. It's insane. 
maybe that's happening, but I I have not personally seen it. If you guys have examples of that happening, let me know, Nate, at goodmorningliberty.us. So the reason I'm so emotional about this is because each one of these problems, you can look at it, and you can see the time that the government got involved and the problem got worse. Problems exist in a free market. It's not perfect. There, there's no perfect society. There's no utopia. It's not going to exist. So I'm not saying problems don't exist, but what happened was when the problems did exist, we went the complete wrong direction. The absolute wrong direction. We made them worse out of fear, out of a need for safety, out of a need to feel more secure. We'll just have these people take care of it and it'll get better. And in every single instance, we've seen it get worse. And then we have people like Bernie Sanders coming out there and saying that the problem, the problem is the rich. The problem is with all of these evil CEOs. The problem is that the government doesn't have enough money. The problem is that taxes aren't high enough. That's not true. The problem is that government is inefficient. The government does a terrible job at spending money. The government spends $50,000 on toilet seats. The government spends millions of dollars on natural gas stations in Afghanistan. These are things that the government does. Private businesses can't waste money like that. Sure, they waste money. They waste money. But they're at risk for that money. They've got to get it back somehow, and they know it. And they can't force you to buy something from them without a government regulation. They can't force you to buy something from them. So they have to be more cost conscious all the time. They have to be more efficient with their money because they're trying to keep whatever's left over. And in the pursuit of keeping whatever is left over, the profits, evil, evil profits, in the pursuit of keeping whatever is left over, they continuously find ways to lower prices and make things more efficient. Capitalism, the free market, there is no comparison between capitalism and socialism. Capitalism beats it every single time, hands down. No contest. The death toll is clear. It's very clear. So I wanted to talk real quick. Before we talk about, I'm going to talk about the kulaks a little bit today because we had someone ask about that on Instagram. A listener asked about it, so we'll talk about that here in a minute. I'm going to talk about the kulaks real quick. After we mention the new budget that has been proposed by the Trump administration. And it's got a lot of things in it that the Democrats do not like whatsoever. I've actually got something here from the United States Senate Budget Committee, which whose ranking member is Bernie Sanders. Okay, so the United States Senate Budget Committee uh, is headed by someone who obviously does not care about budgeting whatsoever. So that's scary, just to start with. And I have yet to see in this budget whether in all these cuts, there's cuts to Medicare, Medicaid, all kinds of things like that. There's cuts, and I have yet to be able to dig in deep enough to see if this is baseline budgeting or if these are actual cuts. The problem with when you see things like they cut this much out of the budget, well, the baseline budgeting would mean we were going to, in 10 years, the 
the Medicaid expenditure was supposed to be $20 trillion, $10 trillion. And instead, the Medicaid expenditure is going to be $9.5 trillion. The increase, because what it was going to be right now, well, it was going to be seven. It was going to be increasing towards 10. And now it's just going to increase the 9.5. Well, unfortunately, you can call that a $500 billion cut. But it's just a cut in the projected increase. Okay. But I will say there are some, some actual cuts in Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security in here that libertarians should at least take note of and that conservatives should be very, very weary of trying to demonize whatsoever. Okay. This is kind of a bold move. But then again, you have to remember that the White House budget does not exactly matter. They don't make the budget. The White House budget is kind of a virtue signal, especially in an election year. So they want to say, this is what we want to do. Now, sure, it can drive the direction of what Congress is going to do as far as their budgeting. It can set some type of precedent or some kind of direction for what they're going to be looking for. But it doesn't mean that this is actually going to be the budget. This is just what they are saying they want the budget to be. And it's a $4.8 trillion budget for 2021. But it makes some pretty big cuts to Medicare and Medicaid. I'm going to read a little bit of what Bernie Sanders' thing, the, the United States Senate Budget Committee, has said about these cuts. The Trump budget for 2021 is a budget of, by, and for the 1%. It is a deeply immoral document and befitting a president who lies constantly. Six days ago, President Trump told the American people that he would always protect your Medicare and always protect your Social Security. Always. Four days ago, President Trump's Medicare and Medicaid chief wrote an op-ed entitled, No, the Trump administration is not cutting Medicaid. Three days ago, Vice President Pence said that the ramp up in deficits has been necessary to restore economic growth. Two days ago, President Trump tweeted, we will not be touching your Social Security or Medicare in fiscal 21 budget. And then yesterday, President Trump released a budget that proves all of these statements were lies. Remember, I think this is either written by Bernie Sanders or by his budget committee. The Trump budget cuts the Social Security Disability Program by tens of billions of dollars, probably over 10 years. It cuts Medicare by about half a trillion dollars. It cuts Medicaid by nearly one trillion, and it uses the deficit, which Trump has increased through tax cuts for the wealthy and an un unnecessary increase to the bloated Pentagon budget, as an excuse to slash programs for the most vulnerable people in America. And then we go through all these reasons that we have to have all of these things. And the really cool thing is that the EPA budget for 2021, Trump has proposed a 26% decrease in the EPA's budget for, for 2021. That's hilarious. I, I like that. That's a good start. Let's decrease it by that much every single year. That sounds pretty good to me. So in this budget, they are saying that he is cutting... $900 billion from Medicaid, and he's going to be cutting $500 billion from Medicare. Now, we have to look at what these cuts are going to be. Now, first off, 
what we do with Medicaid is the states do the Medicaid thing. And then what happens is the federal, the federal government matches what the states are doing for Medicaid. So what he's saying is that we're not going to be doing this matching for all of the Medicaid expansion that happened under the Affordable Care Act. Um, newsflash, we don't have any money. Actually, we've got a whole lot of negative money. So he's saying, um, we don't have any money. We are matching money that we don't have. What he's doing is that he's going to be shifting this burden over to the states, which is where it should be. If we're going to have that program, then the states need to be paying for it. And they need to be making the decisions about their budgets. And if you absolutely have to have Medicaid, it's not that hard to move to a different state. If you want to move to California, I'm sure they will have unlimited Medicaid. So you can go there. One of the other cuts they're saying we have is because of the, the, the work programs and the work requirements to be able to get into these programs. They're projecting that by enacting all of these work requirements, that a certain amount of the people are not going to qualify, so therefore there will be less money paid out for it. And they're calling that a cut in those programs. That's not exactly a cut in those programs. Uh, guys, all you got to do is be applying for a job. You got to be actively trying to find a job. There's 7 million open jobs in the U.S. right now. You got to be trying to find a job. Or they've even got it in the freaking thing that if you want to work charity hours throughout the week, if you want to work for charity, then you can still qualify. You can still qualify for the benefits. Even if you don't want to go work for your evil boss, you can go do charity work. Okay? This is not talking about cutting those programs for disabled people or for the, the elderly and they're not going to be able to get their money. This is a work requirement for able-bodied people who should be working or could be working that are choosing to not even be looking for a job. This is the type of incentive that you actually need. Now, the Medicare cuts. Here's a weird part about the Medicare cuts that um, I'm trying to figure out what exactly Bernie's looking for here. Now, obviously, he wants Medicare for all. So he doesn't want to see the money that Medicare is paying out go down whatsoever. But when we're talking about Medicare, the main thing they're talking about cutting in this budget is they're talking about renegotiating prices that they're paying hospitals. They're talking about renegotiating prices that they're paying for prescription drugs for seniors. They're talking about changing the numbers that they will be willing to pay out for these things. And they're saying, we're going to renegotiate these prices. We're going to pay a lower amount. And therefore, our budget can actually go down because we'll be able to pay out a lower amount because we've renegotiated what all the prices we're going to pay are. The interesting part about this is this entire time I've been hearing Sanders and Warren and all of these people talk about how they needed to renegotiate the prices, how they needed to tell the drug companies what they were going to pay them. They needed to be dictating prices to them, lower prices, obviously, for all of these things. What does Bernie or Warren expect to happen to the necessary budget if right now we're going to pay out a trillion dollars for expenses and, and prescription drugs and all that, 
and we renegotiate the price down and we say, okay, well, it's only going to take $500 million, $500 billion to pay for these same things. Isn't that what they're talking about doing in the first place is renegotiating all these prices, is getting all of the prices down? Isn't that what they're already talking about trying to do? Is that not in an attempt to lower the amount of money that Medicare is having to pay out for things to healthcare providers? So that's where you kind of get this partisan nature of this budget fight, where he's actually doing something that, that Bernie and Warren have been talking about doing, which is renegotiating payments for things and trying to get lower payments for things, paying out less money to the healthcare providers. He's got that in this budget. And so therefore, he says, we will need less money because we're going to renegotiate the pricing. So therefore, the budget can be lower. What else are they looking for? What, what do you think is going to happen to the budget when you renegotiate all the prices? It can go down. But if you want to be political and you want to be a partisan hack, then you can just talk about how this is a massive cut in the budget. They're also talking about enacting so much red tape in trying to get all of these programs, trying to enroll in all these programs, they are projecting that by enacting so much more red tape and regulations and how you're going to be able to apply and be approved and be qualified for these programs, that that's going to be $152 billion less needed for the budget simply because they've enacted more regulation, which tells you something about regulation right there, that they're able to project that we will be able to enact enough regulation to get people to not use this program, to get people to not use this industry, to not have to pay out money. It tells you something about what regulations do, by the way. They kill industries. They stop people from being able to use the products and services. They're purposefully using regulations to stop people from being able to use the services. That's hilarious, in my opinion. So in the, this, this whole idea, the whole thing, what I would want to ask Bernie Sanders and what I would want you guys, I, I did go live on Instagram during this podcast, so Good Morning Liberty Podcast, look it up on your podcast app. Go to BernieLies.com also if you want to read what looks exactly like Bernie Sanders' website, only with actual truthful information on it. If you want to go look at that, go to BernieLies.com. What I would want to ask Bernie Sanders is, with all these programs, with all the welfare, with all the benefits, with all of everything, what is the goal? What's your end goal? I think that's an issue. That's something that we don't all agree on. Because when I see a, a work requirement, meaning that if you're going to qualify for this program, you need to at least be applying for a job. You need to be working some hours if there are jobs available. When I see these requirements, I'm like, okay, well, it seems like the goal should be that people would be able to get on their own two feet, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. They should be able to get on their own two feet and be stable enough to pay for their own needs and necessities and not have to be dependent on other people, not have to be dependent on the government, to be able to live their own lives free of having to wait for legislation to give them money. How about they just live a better life and not be needing that program? 
there's this weird thing where during the Obama administration, so many more people were added on to SNAP, food stamps. So many more people were added on, and they touted this as a success. How is this a success? Is this program successful? Yes, we've added a million people on it. How is that a success? What's the point of the program? The point of the program should be, able, should be to enable people to not need the program. So the program growing by millions of people is not a su success of the program whatsoever. We don't have a defined goal here. Bernie Sanders doesn't have a defined goal here. His goal is for everyone to be living off of the government because he's a communist. His goal is to be able to get everyone to live off the government because the government should be providing everything. It's, it's completely insane that he cannot define this one simple goal. What is the goal of welfare? What is the goal of Medicare, of Medicaid, of SNAP? What is it? So I want to know what he would say to that. Is it so people will live on this for the rest of their lives and always be dependent on the incomes of other people? Is that your actual goal? Or is it that they would be able to grow beyond that and not need it anymore and have an amazing, fruitful life full of meaning and happiness and not be needing the government to provide them everything all the time? Which one is the goal? Because when you demonize people getting off of these programs, when you demonize people leaving the programs or people needing to look for work so they can qualify for the programs, the simple fact of people being able to uh, look for a job, be productive in society so they can take money from the other people who are productive in society, your goal should be that everyone has a job. Your actual goal should be that everyone is working, that everyone's being productive, that everyone is providing value for everyone else. That's what a job is. You guys are using your cell phones right now, your computers, you're wearing clothing, you're going to drive somewhere today. You need a people to do all of that for you. And then you're going to provide value to other people as well. That's the entire purpose of the whole thing is for you to be able to provide value to people so they will provide value to you in return that's all work is you're providing value for society so when i ask bernie sanders what is his goal what is it i cannot i would not be able to get a clear answer on that you would not be able to because when you design these policies to be able to get people off of these programs to incentivize people to try and lead a life where they're not needing to be dependent on other people, people demonize it. When that should be the entire goal in the first place. Any of you guys who are, I don't know, older, getting closer to the Social Security age or Medicare age, anything like that, if you've got an issue with them cutting these budgets, you've got to realize we ain't got no money. There's no money. We're the trillion dollar deficit. This is a $4.8 trillion budget, and it's got big cuts in it to these programs. Now, are there other places that we could cut? Yeah. We don't need to have 800 military bases in 150 countries. I truly do not believe that. 
I do not think we need all those bases. Could the Pentagon's budget be cut? Could the DOD's budget be cut? It could be cut, and that would not need to affect the troops. The troops' pay, the troops' conditions is a very, very, very small portion of the 800-something billion dollars that gets paid out. The Pentagon has problems. The DOD has problems just like in everything else we talked about. You see the government throwing out money towards healthcare. It makes healthcare more expensive, more inefficient. There's no reason for prices to ever decrease whatsoever. You see the government throwing out money towards uh, college tuition. The college tuition prices explode. There's no reason for them to ever get cheaper whatsoever because they're just getting free taxpayer money all the time. What do you guys think happens in the DOD budget? Do you really think that they are paying the cheapest and most efficient prices for things? Do you really think that those planes could not be manufactured for less than $50 million a plane? Why would they need to manufacture it for lower than that? Why would they ever need to lower their prices? Why would they ever need to be more efficient whatsoever? Most of the country thinks that they need an unlimited budget. So you got to be mindful of how these people are spending money. Part of the DoD budget was a natural gas station in Afghanistan. How many cars do you think they have running on natural gas in Afghanistan? How much of that money do you think actually went to building that place? To the security for building the place? And then how much of it do you think actually went out the back door to a lot of other things that we'll probably never find out about? A lot of it. Why, when you get a military plane, it's got a $50,000 toilet seat in it? Can you not clearly admit the fact that the DOD wastes money? That they could be using less money? Now, the thing is, the social services, they're more than the DOD budget. So, while I'm dogging on the DOD, I'm dogging on the Pentagon... I do think their budget could actually be decreased without hurting our safety. Yes, that could happen. I think their budget could be decreased. We also have to realize that most of the money goes towards social welfare programs. Now, there's a lot of things going around saying that that's not the case, that most of it goes to, most of it goes to the military. But there's a difference between a discretionary and a non-discretionary budget. Those are two different parts of the budget. Yes, one of them, the military, is the biggest piece. But then when you put the entire thing together, I mean, if you look at Medicare, some of these things are over a trillion dollars. It's just over, it's over a trillion dollars already. Good question from Instagram. I like that one. How do you get an open and free market in jet production? It's a tough, I've racked my brain on this one before. If you've got some good ideas, I want to listen to them too. The main thing I would do is I would, Leave that market as open as possible because you guys know what's happening right now. All of the mil military industrial complex people, Boeing, all that, you know, you want to name all, all these people, Lockheed Martin, that are making all of these planes. Well, they're, they're paying people the right amounts of money and putting enough money towards people's elections that they're guaranteeing themselves the contracts. So there's, not, there's no free market there. They're guaranteeing themselves the contracts. Why don't you leave that market open? Say you opened it up to a free market. Say Trump, say Trump said tomorrow, said, from now on, there is not a single guaranteed contract in any of the things that we do in the military. Anyone who brings us a product, anyone who brings this, anyone who brings an idea to the table, you've got a chance for the contract. Elon Musk. If you want to invent a new plane, how much money do you think he spent 
inventing his Tesla cars and SpaceX and all that. Elon, if you want to invent a new plane and it's going to actually be cheaper, you want to put a lot of money towards it, you spend billions on all these other things. We've got a $35 million plane. If you want to spend $10 million and make us a plane and you tell me that, that we can do contracts for $10 million for this plane instead of 30, 40, 50 million, you're the one that's going to get the contract. But the issue is that we have right now is these, these contracts are already guaranteed. There's no free market in them. They're already, people are paid off in the back door of the, of the capital to make sure that the right people are getting the budget allocated towards them for their things. So first thing I would say is any, any investors out there, any businesses out there, from now on, there's not a single guaranteed thing to anyone who's producing any military equipment. If you want to create something new and it's cheaper than what we currently have, then we're going to go with you. I just think that right there, even saying that would lower the prices from the people that they're currently buying things from. Someone said, do you predict libertarians win any relevant election soon? He's talking about governors, anything like that. No, I don't. I do not think that's going to happen uh, for a really long time. I'm a member of the Libertarian Party. I pay my dues. I pay my 25 bucks a year, whatever it is. I got my membership card. I do not think that's going to happen. I think you could see potentially a state rep, something like that. We had some that actually got really close on the state rep over on the west side of the country somewhere. I can't remember the state, New Mexico, Arizona, something like that. But no, I really don't see them getting close enough. They've done a terrible job at marketing, unfortunately. They're not out there. They're not even saying the stuff. They're not even saying the stuff like what I'm saying right now. They're out there. You know, their, their number one hill they're going to die on is for drug legalization, which is fine. It's about, I agree with that. Is that a winning message where you're going to garner millions of votes? No, because you're saying drug legalization and getting rid of the welfare state and not having any free health care and not having free college. So you're not going to get all the young people. The old people are going to hate you. They need to fix their messaging. Their messaging needs to be taxation. Their messaging needs to be free market. Their messaging needs to be those kinds of things, individual liberty. But then they get on these and they get on these, these issues where they're going to demonize the military. They're going to demonize the police. And on an individual basis, there's, there's room to call out people for doing bad things. But they make these general statements like the military are murderers or police are just evil, racist people. You're alienating yourselves from every single group of people. The old people don't like you because you're going to legalize drugs. They also don't like you because you hate police officers. Now and then the police officers like you. Military members are pretty disgusted because you're saying that military is a bunch of murderers. You're alienating everyone. The young people don't like you because you're not going to give them free stuff. They alienate everyone around these messages that, that just are not going to work. They got to talk about individual liberty, low taxes, low regulation. They got to get on the right track. This all or nothing, the all or nothing Libertarian Party is just something that I've never disagreed with. I'm a Libertarian bordering on ANCAP, whatever, you know, anarcho-capitalist, whatever that is. I'm all the way down that line, but I also have enough political marketing mindset to know that 
all of our liberties were taken small step by small step by small step for 150 years. Thinking that we're just going to elect and get them all back in a, in a term, it's not going to happen. You've got to be okay with stepping it back towards liberty over time. The socialists know this. They've known this for a long time. The socialists have been doing this step by step. I said this in the episode a while back. How many socialists do you know that hate Bernie Sanders because he's not a real socialist? He's not calling for the, for the dissolvement of all of the corporations and giving worker ownership to everyone right now. He's not a real socialist, so we hate him. That's not what's happening. Socialists see Bernie Sanders, and they're like, wow, I mean, this isn't what I want. You know, this isn't true socialism. I don't see that he's going to murder 100 million people next year or anything, but hey, he's at least a step in the right direction. You know, maybe I can get him, and then I can get some Bill de Blasio, and then we can, and then we can finally have this true socialist dictatorship that I've always wanted. So they're okay with stepping in these directions, even though they don't have perfect candidates. Libertarians are not okay with that. Libertarians are people who demonize guys like Rand Paul. Heck, some of them demonize guys like Ron Paul. Is Rand Paul perfect? No, not so. He's not a liber- perfect libertarian. He's got a lot of libertarian leanings. Is he a perfect libertarian? No. Is he an amazing step in the direction towards having a libertarian government someday down the road? Yes. He's an amazing step in that direction. But they don't have a long-term vision for that whatsoever. That's why they've gone 50 years and nothing's happened. If I were you, I think you said something, uh, being from Germany, possibly. Um, I wouldn't be so concerned with the libertarian party, per se. There's great organizations there's great organizations like Young Americans for Liberty, who's someone that we support, who they are libertarians. I've met all of them. I've been to their conferences. The people who run Young Americans for Liberty are libertarians. But their organization mainly supports Republican candidates for state representative. They're libertarians that actually have a smart marketing goal and a long-term vision for this, for this actual goal. They don't care what name you've got next to you. Look how you go back through our episodes. How libertarian am I? Pretty darn libertarian. Yet if I ran as a Republican, the libertarians wouldn't like me. That is the same kind of political party bias that you see everywhere else. That's not what you want. If you're a libertarian and your goal is liberty... And it shouldn't matter what your political party is. Not whatsoever. I don't care if there's someone who says they're a Democrat and they have a strictly libertarian philosophy on everything and they are a registered Democrat. I don't care. I want liberty. I don't want the libertarian party to make it somewhere. That's not always better. The lesser of two evils is still evil. Guess what? The lesser of three evils is still evil too. We put up Gary Johnson last time, who obviously did not believe in complete individual liberty, did not believe in self-ownership. Yet you were supposed to go vote for him and hate everyone else. It's a, it's a political party bias. They've got the same thing. I don't care which party is winning, as long as the people who are winning have liberty as their primary political value 
That is what I would actually care about. That's what Young Americans for Liberty cares about. So uh, someone explained that. Uh, what do you think of a net taxpayer voting system? I don't know what that is. Tell me what that is. So um, just don't be too concerned with the party. Be concerned with each candidate. If we have a mixture of Republicans and Democrats and some Libertarians, but they all hold liberty as their primary political value and they all have a Libertarian philosophy, then I don't care if the Libertarian Party doesn't have the majority or, or whatever. I care that we have a majority of people who are fighting for individual liberty. So that's, that's just the way that I, that I look at it. I want the Libertarian Party to do well. I understand. I agree with you. I want them to do well. But until they fix their marketing, until they fix the way that they portray themselves throughout the world, until you actually fix those types of things in the inside of that party, they're, they're just, they're not going to be able to do it. They got 3 million votes in the last election. That was only because so many people hated the two options. They're, they're fooling themselves. They're full. Yeah, you're you're right about the Republican elites. They're not. They're not. Most of them are not. So I'm not saying like I want to vote for Republicans because I think they're towards liberty. I'm saying I want to vote for Republicans who are Republican in name only, but they're actually Republicans. So let me see. The net taxpayer system is where only net taxpayers can vote. It's an interesting idea. So there's this idea, obviously been around for a long time, that once the people realize that they would be able to vote themselves other people's money, they'd be able to vote to themselves in the prosperity, that that would herald the end of the republic, I think is the way that that quote goes. Some, something like that. I can't remember who said it. Was that Benjamin Franklin? Maybe you can tell me. We've talked about that idea before, the idea that only people who were actually net taxpayers People who were going to have to bear the burden of the government's policies would be the ones who were voting. I can't, I understand the, I understand the logic behind it. And I understand the situation we're in now, where now you see that you can vote yourself other people's money, that, uh, that that's going to keep making everything worse. But I, I wouldn't be able to support anything that took any type of voting rights away from individuals in the first place because I don't like taxation in the first place. I don't want anyone to be a net taxpayer. So I don't want anyone to be a net taxpayer. So I can't, I can't really say that I would want anyone to, uh, to be able to, yeah, I know earlier the way, the way it was first Sorry, if you're listening on the podcast, I'm talking to people on Instagram right now, so it might sound weird when you're listening later on the podcast. Um, yeah, earlier, the early system was that people um, who owned land would be able to vote, and that's because of this ideology. You're the one who's going to have to bear the brunt of what the government's doing. Therefore, you've got the most interest in, in what laws the government passes. So yeah, I... I, I completely understand that idea, and I'm not even saying I completely disagree with it. Um, I have not. To me, it's such a symptom of such a larger problem, which is that we have the welfare state, that we've given the government the ability to take money from me without my permission, that we've got all of these different issues that shouldn't exist in the first place, that this issue is like a massive symptom of a much, much, much deeper problem. And so I have a hard time trying to figure out 
I, I try to, uh, I have a hard time figuring out uh, whether or not uh, you would be able to take away voting rights from people because they weren't paying taxes. I, I don't think I'd be able to get away with that just because I feel like it would be removing your rights as an individual to vote in the government inside the, that you live in. So I just don't think that, uh, I don't think I'd be able to get behind it, although I would say I do completely understand the logic behind it. I understand the problem that creates this that situation and creates that kind of question um i just don't think it would be something i'd be able to support he says do you think the republican voter base is more like paul or a neocon like i think most of the republican voter base is more like bush definitely not more like paul so Rand paul's an exception thomas massey is an exception justin amash when he was a republican was an exception ron paul was an exception and what I'm saying is, I realize that a lot of the Republicans are more like Bush as far as spending goes, government power goes, executive authority goes. So I'm not saying that I'm just going to go vote for any Republican because Rand Paul's a Republican. That's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to vote for Rand Paul because Rand Paul has Rand Paul's values. If there's just a Republican running in my district, which I could say I did, I did not vote for any of the people here in Nashville that were running Republicans, I did not agree with most of their most of their policies. So all I'm saying is I vote for someone based on what their principles are and what direction I think they would have us heading. So it it really doesn't have anything to do with what their political party is. I most of the Republican Party talk about the founding fathers they talk about the constitution they talk about individual liberty and they're still okay with things that thomas jefferson if he were here today he would burn the entire thing down republicans included he would complete he would he would arm up and he would take them all out yet they still invoke the founding fathers while also arguing that we shouldn't cut medicare or social security so, yeah, most of the Republicans are more like, more like a Bush Republicans than they are like Rand Paul Republicans. What I'm saying is I will vote for the Rand Paul Republicans, and I will be happy when a Rand Paul or Ron Paul Republican is elected. I will be just as happy when there is a Ron Paul or Rand Paul Republican elected as I would be if Ron or Rand Paul had a libertarian name next to them. I would be the same happy because the same because the same person with the same ideology would be in power. So I'm just saying that don't look at the don't look at the political name next to them, the political party name next to them. Look at what their principles are, look at their voting record, look at what their ideology is and the political party name just it it just shouldn't matter. It should be it should be an afterthought. That's, that's how they raise money, but look at how they vote. Look at what their actual ideology is. Read Rand Paul's book, The Case Against Socialism, is amazing. I've read it three times. It gives you amazing arguments on all of these things. I'm going to talk real quick about one of the things from that. Someone asked about the kulaks, the kulaks in Russia. If you guys don't know about this, the kulaks were the, they were the farmers in Russia in the 1920s. That's what they called them. Okay. So Vladimir Lenin running things. Obviously, Stalin comes in a little bit later. Well, they were going through some economic problems, having a hard time. This is the 1920s. World's not exactly doing amazing at that time. The people who were doing the best were people who could farm and grow their own food. 
They were they were the farmers. They could actually have food. Remember, food still very scarce resource at this time. Not a not as many obese people in the 1920s. So Russia, Lenin pinpointed who the people's villain needed to be. It was the ruling class. It was the wealthy. That's who he pinpointed. They called them kulaks. They were they were they were the farmers. It was anyone who had a couple more cows than anyone else. Anyone who had another acre of land, uh, more acreage than anyone else. Anyone who had any type of machinery. Anyone who took in any money that was not a direct result of their physical labor. If they hired people, anything like that. They were all eventually labeled kulaks. And this was a very, very tough time because what ended up happening was it ended up being a decree from the Russian government to hang those types of people in the street. They got the people in the towns to rise up and kill their friends, kill the people that they lived around for their whole lives. Vladimir Lenin called them bloodsuckers, people who uh, plundered and lived on profits and whatever else he said. He called them all the things like this, and he got the people to hate them so much that they would rise up and kill them. It was called the dekulakization. Dekulakization. So they killed a lot of people. They killed uh, actually up to a, a million kulaks. It's actually a little bit more than that. Here's the problem. The kulaks were the people who were farmers. The kulaks were the people who were good at business. The kulaks were the people who were the best at being the most productive they possibly could. They killed them. They killed all of them. They took them and they shipped them away to gulags. They shipped them to the northern parts of the countries where they would freeze to death. They got rid of all of them so they could finally live a prosperous life. Get rid of all those evil rich that were living there called the kulaks. And lo and behold, what happened in a couple of years after that? They hit a famine, and six million people starved to death. That's how ingrained this ideology was in these people's heads. They had to kill these people. They had to get them out of their society. These people were profiting off of them. They were making their, heart, their lives harder. They had more, therefore that meant they were taking it from them. So they had to remove them from their society. They had to put them in the gulags. Only problem was, those people were the farmers. Those people were the the people who were the best at growing food. So in the years immediately after this, you had the famine where six million people died of starvation in the famine. These people, Lenin and Stalin, instilled such a great hatred for people who had more than others, that they literally got them to kill the people that grew their food in blind hatred, blind emotion towards these people, all because they hated them because they had more than they did, because they were all wage slaves to them. The emotion and the hatred was so big, so irrational, that they literally murdered the people that were growing their food. And then six million people starved to death. You can look at 
you can look at what happened in Germany. You know, we look at we look at the Holocaust as something. Obviously, it was done on racial lines, and it was in a large part. But you got to look at why they had that ideology. They were just coming out of the Weimar Republic. They had a 466 billion percent inflation rate in three years in the Weimar Republic. That's what Germany was called. Then you have, well, why don't we just blame the people who are doing better than everyone else? Why don't we blame the people who uh, own most of the banks and most of the shops and who are most of the lawyers and most of the doctors? Why don't we just blame them? Just so happens they were all Jewish. So they got rid of them. You can look what happened with Pol Pot, with Mao. Same ideology playing out over and over again. 60 million people at least in Mao's China getting rid of the capitalist, getting rid of the people who wanted profit. Same thing with Pol Pot. Look at how Chavez and Maduro chased out everyone who was profiting, who was running the business. And now look at what Venezuela is having to endure right now. So someone asked earlier today, I think it was on Instagram, they said, who was today's kulaks? Today's kulaks are the wealthy, just like they've always been. They've always been the wealthy. It's always been the wealthy in all of these societies that led to all of this death and destruction and millions of people starving to death. It started with people fanning the flames of envy, irrational, emotional hatred towards people who have more than you, and getting them to rise up and either run those people out of the country or to literally murder them. And then people starved to death. They couldn't produce things. Millions of people, over 100 million people, and this is how it started every single time. They all started with a hatred for the people that were doing better than everyone else. Now, I'm not saying that we're about to start putting Jeff Bezos in a gulag or anything, you know, counter to, uh, to what some of Bernie Sanders' staffers would want to do. I'm not saying that that's what we're about to start doing. But this mentality still exists. It's human nature. This is exactly what human nature is. You hate the people who have more than you. You want to blame it on them. You don't ever want to take the responsibility for what's going on in your life. You don't want to actually take the very tough steps to try and fix it. You don't want to try and live inside of your means. You don't want to try and live below your means for a while so you can save up money and live a better life afterwards. You don't want to try and make yourself more valuable. You don't want to increase your human capital and find a way to get up there with those other people. You want to try and find a way to bring them down to you. Because then it's not your fault. Then it's, then it's their fault. This is a, I mean, we're, we've got this ideology since we're little kids. It's always someone else's fault. It was your little brother's fault. It's your big brother's fault. It's someone else's fault in class. It was your teacher's fault. This is a child's mentality that is being, pay, that is being played out by an 80-year-old communist who's probably going to win the Democratic nomination. So yeah, the kulaks, today's kulaks are, are the wealthy. We see the same mentality towards them. I hope it doesn't end in the same death and destruction. I think you see uh, closest would be Antifa, would be the people physically trying to play that out. Uh, the, the hatred towards this class. But um, yeah, we're seeing it. We got to make sure that we don't go all the way down that path. People like us, people like us right here, 
We've got to be getting this type of information out. Doesn't have to be this podcast. Doesn't have to be the Good Morning Liberty podcast. New episodes every day, by the way. Doesn't have to be this. There's tons of other podcasts. There's Tom Woods. There's Wealth, Power, and Influence. There's Lines of Liberty. All kinds of stuff. There's a show called Politics that's really good. There's a show called Honoring Ron Paul that's good. We are libertarians. You can, you can listen to any of these things and share their information. Go to fee.org and share their articles. Go to BernieLies.com and share their articles. Go to Cato and share their articles. You know, there, there's tons of places where you can go. PragerU's actually got some good videos out there. Okay, share some of those. Don't be afraid if you're a libertarian. Don't be afraid to make friends with some of your conservative family and, and agree on some things. Hey, <laughs> And then once you settle on all the things you agree with and, and then attack some of the things you disagree on. We all got to work together. We got to get on this train and head towards liberty. We might not all be getting off at the same stop, but let's make sure it's at least going in the right direction. That was cheesy as hell. All right. So this is the Good Morning Liberty podcast. Guys, go to, go to patreon.com slash goodmorningliberty. I'm signing off of Instagram. Thank you guys so much. All right. Getting off of there. Go to patreon.com slash goodmorningliberty. Thank you guys for listening to me chat back and forth with people on here today. It's a lot easier when Charlie's not here. So it's good to chat back and forth with people. Go support the show. There's tons of different options on there. You get a free merch item. You get a merch item with each one of them. You get to run your own Facebook ads through our page for pro-liberty things. We'll promote your podcast or your website on our podcast. Go to, go to goodmorningliberty.us and read some of those articles. Go to BernieLies.com and look at all the counter-arguments to the stupid crap that guy's saying all the time. Visit those websites. Share this show with someone and leave a rating and review. The ratings and reviews on the podcast are like one of the most important things. When someone searches politics or they search libertarian or they search liberty or anything like that, the more ratings and reviews you have, the more likely you will be to show up in someone's search results. That's the way the algorithms work. So one of the easiest things you can do where you don't even have to awkwardly share it with a friend, you don't have to awkwardly show it to someone, one of the easiest things you can do is just leave a, just leave a one-word review that says, yes, <laughs> yes, liberty, clapping, sim- clapping symbol, clapping emoji. You know, just go do that. It'll take two seconds. Leave a five-star review if you think it's worth it. Don't leave one if you think it's worth less than that. Guys, if you like what you heard today, go do all that stuff. I'll be right back here again tomorrow, doing it all again with Charlie here tomorrow. Not just me, so that'll be good. If you guys do all those things, we'll see you tomorrow. Have a good day and a good morning, Liberty.